0: But last week we looked together at Daniel 4 with the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, lost his mind of all sense. That he ended up having to learn through his humiliation that the Most High God rules. So Nebuchadnezzar would experience really a a wonderful humiliation. And that his kingdom was going to be stripped away from from him for seven periods of time. His human instincts were going to be traded for that of an animal. He would eat the grass of the earth like an ox. He would be wet with the dew of the morning. And this was an extreme humiliation. But you remember that as the chapter progresses, it gets to the end where we looked at that final bookend where Nebuchadnezzar, he finally realized something. Didn't he? he finally realized and has a moment where he lifts his eyes to heaven, and his eyes are lifted from his beautiful gates of the city, his eyes are lifted from the walls, his eyes are lifted from the beautiful hanging gardens he had built, his eyes are lifted from all of his temples, and they're lifted to the Most High God. He finally recognizes, after four decades of leading his empire, that he, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is not the sole leader of the universe, and that he is not the prime person in all things, but that it would be the most high God that he would realize was the ruler. That it is a sovereign God who sets up kings. It's a sovereign God who takes down kings. That it's a sovereign God who reigns in in the heavens, and he does everything that he pleases. And who are we to question any of his deeds? And so Nebuchadnezzar really has a Cinderella-esque ending, doesn't he? It all ends pretty well. We look at his life and say, wow, he lived a selfish life. But then at the end, he finally realizes that it's the Most High that that rules. And then in the beginning of that chapter, when he begins writing, he says that this is something that God had done for me. And so this is a Cinderella-esque ending. It ends happily, but such is not the case with our chapter this morning. In fact, the tale of two kings, if you will in Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5, displays for us an incredible contrast. One king in Nebuchadnezzar who was lifted up in his pride for decades, and God is gracious, God is patient with him, and we see him humbled by the work of God for him. But then another king in this chapter who is lifted up in his own pride, he should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar's example, yet was not met by grace and patience from God. Instead, he was met with quick judgment. Nothing is mentioned about Nebuchadnezzar's death in the book of Daniel. But within the story of Daniel, he has died again after 43 years of reigning. Following his death, it's believed that actually another king reigned. That would have been uh, probably Nebuchadnezzar's son or ruling over that area. But then we see that this man named Belshazzar comes up, and he is now the king. And he's referred to the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but he is more likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm not saying that the Bible is wrong. Don't hear me saying that the Bible is wrong. We, we know this from history, and there are clues within the text as well. Oftentimes in these ancient cultures, they refer to their ancestors as their father. Right. That makes sense. We could say, well, Father Abraham had many sons and Abraham is our father and so forth. Right. We would say that. And so Daniel isn't wrong to call Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father because he is he is his ancestor, but not in the way that we think of father usually. But the difference between the final words of Nebuchadnezzar and the first words that we see of Belshazzar are vastly different. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who had indeed been given greatness from the Lord. But then you have the grandson in Belshazzar, who is really riding on grandpa's coattails, if you will. He's riding the remainder of the success that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, brought about for the city of Babylon. So the apple, in this case, had fallen very far from the tree that these men were vastly different kings they were vastly different in their personalities and the way they uh, went about things and all of that and vastly different in the end of both of their lives but does not this setting say it all you see the first verse the, the setting of this is a party and it's a lavish party You can imagine the the banquet tables that are filled with food. You can imagine the overflows of alcohol and the profuse immorality even. In fact, the party here is testified to by ancient historians Xenophon and Herodotus. They record that the night Babylon was taken over, a massive banquet was happening. This banquet of a thousand people. Now this is troubling because the setting of the banquet was not as it would have been in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, where they were the powerhouse, and they didn't have much to worry about. The setting of this banquet is that the enemies of Babylon are literally outside of the gates, and they would have known this. In fact, history tells us that, that the Medes and the Persians were outside of the gates because they simply overtook it that very night. And we know this because the Babylonians had, Babylonians had lost a battle only several days before. A huge battle to the Medes and the Persians. And so this wasn't overtaken like a thief in a night. They would have known that this was going to befall them. That they would have known that there was at least a likelihood that the Medes and the Persians could come in and overtake them. And so here they are, literally throwing a party, having a party. You can imagine with a thousand people, right? Some of you ladies fed 30 people for lunch and dinner for this last peep last week as the team was here. It's like, wow, that's an undertaking to feed 30 people. Can you imagine feeding a thousand people? And so here they are, literally partying like there is no tomorrow. And there would be no tomorrow for them. The Medes and the Persians would overtake them. But this is something that we already knew, didn't we? Because we looked at the vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, and you remember that he would be the head of gold, But the head of gold would not remain long. The shoulders of silver would come into play. And Daniel would live to see that happen. And so the setting is this party with the cloud of uh, of being taken over covering it. But the first main character in this account is Belshazzar. And he's really the the star of the show. The descendant of the great Nebuchadnezzar. And he decides to do something that apparently his father or his grandfather had never done. Notice with me what he does in verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that they had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold. And silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so Belshazzar is drunk out of his mind. The idea is that he is deeply under the influence of alcohol, thus losing all sense. He's acting without any kind of filter, and he commands that the cups of gold and silver from the temple of Yahweh, from the Jewish temple, would be brought out of storage that had been taken captive from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. And so again, this is lavish, right? This is arrogant. This is as much pomp and circumstance as Belshazzar could create. But it was meant to defy the God of the Jews. And so you notice how they took them and did not worship the God from the temple that they came from. They took those, began drinking out of them, and then worshipped the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. So this is meant to defy the God of the Jews, which is ironic when it turns out that a worshipper of this god is the one who comes and delivers the interpretation of the handwriting. And so as they are sitting there drinking out of his vessels, drunk, worshipping these gods, a hand appears out of nowhere and it begins writing on the wall. Can you imagine that? That here we all are and then all of a sudden there's this hand and it starts writing something on the wall. How creeped out would all of us be? And some people have argued, well, this hand is really just uh, they're drunk, right? So they're drunk, so they're all just kind of seeing this thing happen and all that. But that can't be the case because Daniel comes eventually. He's not here. He ends up coming into the room and there's stuff on the wall. And so this hand comes and writes on the wall. So Belshazzar are having this party with a thousand people. They're defiling the vessels of God's temple, drunk, and then God crashes the party. This hand appears, begins to write the words on the wall. "Meanie, meanie." Tekel, Parson. We'll get to what those words mean in a minute. But it's important to note the response that Belshazzar has to this hand. Look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, I don't say this to be crude, but to express to you how terrified Belshazzar is. The translation of this verse here says that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. One commentator I've read said that a better understanding of the language here is that Belshazzar had literally wet himself. That he was scared out of his mind to the point where he loses control of his bodily functions. And so in this panic he begins to do what Nebuchadnezzar had always done. What's the response when you have a bad dream or a bad vision? You begin to call all your diviners, right? Your magicians, all of those Chaldeans that they're called within the text. And this is exactly what Belshazzar starts to do. He begins to call all of these mediums and astrologers to begin to to interpret what was written on the wall. But there's somebody who comes into the party before Daniel that has a little bit of sense. It's the queen. She's simply referred to as the queen, the second main character of the story. This is likely the queen mother possibly Belshazzar's mom because she, the queen and the wife and the concubines and all of them they were already within the party but then it seems as though she kind of makes an entrance and so it could be that she is the queen mother or the queen grandmother possibly being Nebuchadnezzar's queen but whoever she is we know that she is a woman of authority and power but she is also somebody with a memory in fact she doesn't just call uh, Daniel Belshazzar which is what he would have been known by she calls him Daniel She's somebody with a memory. She's obviously older and more experienced than her grandson. And she remembers that somebody named Belshazzar is actually named Daniel. And she tells Belshazzar not to worry. Look at verse 11. This is what she says. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spear of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Now she doesn't know how to word things quite right. You know, like if we were going to word this, we would word it a little differently. But this queen understands something about Daniel, that the spirit of the holy gods is in him. That, that's the way she phrases it. That's the best thing she knows how to come up with. One author said this: This was what the queen was trying to express. Daniel was in fellowship with another world. That that Daniel knew God. So the queen knows that Daniel knows God but not just any God. This isn't the God of the wood or the God of gold or silver. That it's a holy God, right? And let me quickly apply this to you by asking, is there a sense in which people know this about you? Is there a sense in which, not that you, you just maybe show up to church, but that you actually are a worshiper of the holy God. Brothers and sisters, if the Spirit of God is in you, People outside of you, in your workplace, and in your homes, or your families, are going to know this about you. That if you are walking by the Spirit, and you are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, people are going to take notice. You cannot be a genuine Christian, and people not take notice of that. And so they may not know how to describe it, like the Queen doesn't know how to describe it. But people are going to be able to tell that you walk by the Spirit, evidencing the fruit of the Spirit within your lives. That you worship a holy God. In a world like Babylon, and in a world like ours, that's really not that far from Babylon. If the fruit of the Spirit is being demonstrated in your lives, you can be sure that people are going to take notice. And this queen takes notice. So here comes Daniel. Think of him coming in. He's an old man. Probably in his 80s by now. He has been through the ringer with King Nebuchadnezzar, back and forth, discussing all of his dreams. You can imagine the ministry that he would have had there. Yet here he comes. Some have argued that Daniel was in semi-retirement, and that since Nebuchadnezzar had died, Daniel had probably fallen off the scene, which is evidenced here, of course, because Belshazzar has no idea who he is. Yet here he comes, the sage of a man, godly, committed. You remember in the first chapter, he was going to not defile himself. He lived a pure life in Babylon, and yet here he is again in the presence of a king. And I want to point out to you, though, the difference in his approach with Belshazzar and the difference between that and his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar several decades before. In the last chapter, when Daniel had bad news for Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember how he approached it? Do you remember in the last chapter how he approached it? It was like, this is terrible news. I hope that this is actually for your enemies. I hope this isn't going to go against you, King Nebuchadnezzar, but let it be for those who hate you. The great tree, you remember, that was chopped down. Let that be for your enemies and not for you, King. But he does no such thing with Belshazzar. Daniel comes into the room, Belshazzar promises him the third in the kingdom status. Again, that kind of indicates that the first in the kingdom status was not necessarily Belshazzar's to give, but he had the opportunity to give him the third in the kingdom status with a gold ring and a purple royal garb. But Daniel essentially says, keep your stuff, give it to somebody else. But then what Daniel does is he goes into a bit of a history lesson for this king. A lesson that was not only history, but a lesson that Belshazzar should have taken to heart. It should have been something that Belshazzar himself understood and was humbled by. Look at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over at whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. The Lord of heaven humbled your grandfather. He made him like an ox. Like, this is not news to Belshazzar. Belshazzar knew that that happened. Maybe he had had interactions with Nebuchadnezzar about the time that he was an animal, essentially, eating grass. Belshazzar knew the history of this event. Maybe he had even again heard his grandpa talk about it. That happened. And Nebuchadnezzar was extended grace by God and came to his senses and understood that the Most High as the sovereign ruler of all. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, you knew all of this. You knew all of this and you didn't humble yourself. In fact, you didn't just not humble yourself. You lifted yourself up against God. And Daniel says, what would come upon him upon interpreting the wall. And friends, this is a dangerous position for anybody to be in. To know about the work of God and to not humble yourself. To know about the work of God and then to lift yourself up in pride against him. This reminds me of the grave words of the apostle Paul in Romans 1, where he says That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That they have seen his invisible attributes. You know this passage within Romans 1. That they have seen his invisible attributes. And as those who have seen these things, they're without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And so they trade the glory of God for images of reptiles, of birds, and animals, idols. And although Belshazzar knows the work of God in his own family... And of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. He himself has denied the true God. And is worshipping his idols of wood and stone. And gold and silver. He knew of all that happened to his grandfather. Yet did not humble himself. And children. This is part of the fear that I have for you. That you have seen the work of God. In your mom and dad's lives. And your grandparents lives. And that you won't humble yourself. And so here Daniel is. He has called out the king. And now he goes on to interpret what the writing on the wall means. Meany, meany, tekel parson, a parson, perez, whatever your translation says. But he says in verse 26, Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. In other words, game over. It is finished for you, Belshazzar. The days of the kingdom of that head of gold, of that statue that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about, they're completely over. God himself, as we have learned in his sovereignty, he was going to bring Babylon to to an end. Nebuchadnezzar realizing that he raises kings up, he sets kings down. Babylon was used by God to bring judgment upon the people of God. But now he was going to bring judgment upon them. The second word written on the wall is tekel in verse 27. He says, you, Belshazzar, have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So uh, imagine the scale. You, you've been weighed out and you are found wanting. And third, Perez or Parson, in verse 28, the kingdom was going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians who make up the, the arms and the shoulders of silver in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Think with me again about Nebuchadnezzar in the last chapter. It may not have seemed like it, but Nebuchadnezzar was a clear recipient of the grace of God, of the patience of God in his life. God did not come down and, and smite him, right? That, like he should have, or could have. I shouldn't say should, because I am not God. But that he could have done. He gave Nebuchadnezzar time. In fact, he gave him a whole year to think about this. And Daniel had called him to repentance. And you can imagine, over the course of that year, Daniel wouldn't have the opportunity. Nebuchadnezzar, don't forget, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. you need to remember that the Most High, he is God. But notice, though, that the same grace and patience would not be extended to Belshazzar. Belshazzar would not have a year to think about this. He would not have a year to think about the words that were on the wall like Nebuchadnezzar had a year to think about the words spoken to him. Again, these words meaning, meaning, tekel and parson mean numbered, numbered, the scale is found wanting and you're going to be divided. In other words, Belshazzar, the scales are found wanting when it comes to you. The scale is found wanting. There's something lacking there in you, Belshazzar. It is not balanced. It is not right. You are not right. And quick judgment was going to come upon him. And my friends, all of those who who live in unrepentance, and they refuse to be humbled, just like Belshazzar. Their days are numbered, the scales are found wanting, and they will be destroyed. They will be cast down. They will stand before the Lord, and they will be judged. Belshazzar is emblematic of the world that we live in today. That while everybody is partying, And having a great time and enjoying the moment that judgment is looming. The world is living in the way that they want, hedonistically living for pleasure and wickedness. While judgment is right outside the gates of this life. And you cannot read the Bible and not come to the conclusion that we are all going to be judged. Unbelievers do not realize that they are, like Jonathan Edwards describes, merely held by strands of a spider's web over a licking flame. And the question for us if we do genuinely believe, and we believe the gospel, and we believe in judgment, are we going to tell them? Are we going to tell them that judgment is just beyond the gates of their lives? Are we going to go to them with the great commission and say, Jesus has come. He is the Savior. He will save you. Repent and trust and believe in Jesus. Belshazzar in this party of a thousand people and in all of his riches that were handed down to him, he could not shield himself from the judgment that was going to come. And and one of my fears is that because we live in such a comfortable society, and as far as I know, all of us here, we're not homeless. We have nice homes and we have vehicles and we have a job and security and we think that we're all promised at least 85 years of life, right? And we feel shielded and protected from judgment. We don't feel, we don't feel like it's going to come very quickly. But in the ears of every human being should be heard the words, meeny, meaning, tackle, parson, because we have all been numbered, we are all found wanting, and we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That the scale, just like with Belshazzar, it's out of whack. It's out of whack with us. That we have all turned away from God. We have pursued the prince of the power of the air. And we are found wanting. And as those who found are found wanting, we must be judged. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. If you and I are not here for that day when he returns, then the time of our judgment one of them comes at death. Hebrews 9:27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. But there also will be a great and final day where every single person will universally be judged at the great white throne and it will happen Believe it or not, we actually get a picture of this in Daniel. Why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 7. Just a page over or so to Daniel 7. Beginning of verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out. From before him, a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Take a Bible and turn to Revelation 20. Without a doubt, this is looking forward to a future and final judgment. But this is also something that the Apostle John picks up on in the book of Revelation. In fact, I'd like you to see this in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, there will be a final judgment where we will all be judged. Seemingly the greatest fear that any of us have is that somebody is going to judge us. But God will stand in judgment of us. And friend, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, the prospect of judgment should terrify you. If you are terrified of this judgment, or if you are indifferent to the fact that judgment, you might say, well, the Bible says that it's going to happen, but yeah, whatever. Like if you're indifferent to that fact, I'd implore you to take a serious stock of your soul this morning. We do not know when the time of judgment is going to be, when it's going to take place. Just like Belshazzar was told that he would be dealt with that very night. He had no time to repent. He had no time to reconsider. He was not given the 12 months that Nebuchadnezzar was given before his earthly judgment came. And none of us here know the day or the hour when Jesus is going to appear and universally judge every single one of us. I think this is a lot of talk about judgment. We don't usually do this too much. It's like Billy Graham dies and we're channeling our inner Billy Graham. We're talking about judgment. But none of us know when this is going to happen. The good news is, friend, is that there is time for you to repent now, even if we only have a few moments left before his return. When the Apostle Paul is in the midst of the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17 he addresses these people for worshipping an unknown God but then Paul says that he actually is known that the, the God that you're saying is unknown is known and that it is the true God he is the one that we live and move and have our being in yet he follows that up by saying this the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead and so in Paul's mind there is a day a fixed day where the whole world is going to be universally judged that the judge is going to be none other than Jesus himself and the assurance of all of this is Easter the assurance of this is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and so now in light of these truths God is commanding that everybody repent And if they don't, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. As Revelation 20 makes clear. But on the other side, if the idea of judgment does not terrify you, you have cause for concern. But if the idea of judgment brings you comfort and assurance, that's good. That is Good. And the reason that judgment can bring you comfort is because of what the old Michael Card song says to be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. When you consider the fact that Jesus <coughs> is going to judge the world, do you see Him merely as judge? Or do you think, that's my Savior? Who's going to judge you? For Belshazzar, it was game over. That night, he saw his doom and he met his maker. But what about you? Do you look into your judge's face and see your Savior there? The one who had come, the one who had lived perfectly, died on the cross, and rose again, and the one you had received forgiveness from? Think of your judge. Do you see him there? Meany, Meany, Tekel, Parson. Friends, we have all been numbered and weighed like Belshazzar. and We are all found wanting. But the good, good news is that Jesus did come to this earth and he lived a perfect life, incessantly giving glory to the Father in all of his deeds, perfectly living, perfectly dying, perfectly rising again. And Jesus Christ has been weighed. He has been numbered. And the good news about that is that he is not found wanting. Meany, meany, teckle, parson against Jesus. And the scales are perfectly balanced in the eyes of God. And he extends that righteousness to us that he had attained in his life and death. And so here we are, found wanting in God's eyes. Imperfect, damnable. Yet the extension of grace and mercy to people like us through the only one who could satisfy the scales. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope of Christianity and of Christians that it all rests on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and the scales are not found wanting with him. Father, thank you for sending Christ. Christ, we thank you for coming. Spirit, we thank you for applying all of his work to us and sealing us until the day of redemption. Lord, that prospect, judgment is going to befall us. We know that standing in ourselves, we are damned. But we know that that is not the end for us in that Christ has come and attained these beautiful robes of righteousness and has placed them on all those who have believed in him. And So when we stand in front of Christ, he will see his work and not our own miserable work. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not know you, open their eyes to see. Lord, open eyes to see the beauty of Christ and all that he has attained. So that they too may look at their judge and see the eyes of their Savior looking back at them. In Christ's name, amen. What were you saying with me?